0: Uh, well, 16 years ago, uh, it was the year 2002, uh, I was a college student at the University of Colorado in Boulder. I was in my junior year, uh, and it was the fall semester. Uh, I was in a fraternity called Phi Delta Theta, and uh, around this time, you know, 16 years ago, we had finished our fall recruitment. We had got about 20 pledges or so. And on this particular night, uh, we took a bunch of these pledges. I didn't but guys in the fraternity did and drove them into the mountains. Uh, They were dropped off at the same location in the middle of nowhere with a keg uh, and they were told that they had to finish the keg by midnight. Well, when I got off work uh, that night, I worked at the rec center uh, at CU Boulder. When I got off work that night, uh, I went back to the fraternity house and I hopped into the passenger seat of a silver SUV and I and a couple other guys drove up into the mountains to go pick up these pledges. Now when I picked them up, of course they were wasted, and they piled into our vehicle, and some others crammed themselves into another SUV, a red one, and then a bunch of others hopped into the bed of a a pickup truck. There was a red SUV in the front, I was in a silver SUV in the middle, and the black pickup truck uh, was in the back. The driver of this red SUV uh, was not drunk, but he was driving way too fast for this canyon road. He was flying down the mountain, and he was just whizzing around the turns. We could not keep up with them. It was one of those things where like, we would t- take the turn and you could see the glow of tail lights, going around another bend, and eventually we just lost sight of the glow. We kept driving and driving and driving, trying to keep up, and finally we had to slam on the brakes. Because when we rounded the bend, what we saw was a crumpled mass of metal smashed up against the rock wall. It was this red SUV. It had hit the rock wall, it had flipped, and bodies were lying all over the road. And I remember hopping out of the passenger seat and time sort of seemed to slow down. I remember moving my legs, but it felt like I was floating. And I got to the the, the driver's window and I peered in. And Chris and Tom, who were sitting in the front, were hanging upside down, suspended by their seat belts. And I remember that they were glistening because they were covered in glass from the windshield. The people in the back seat were hanging upside down too. And we told them to get out of the car because gasoline was pooling underneath the vehicle. And when I turned around, it became a triage situation trying to tend to the bodies that were on the floor. I remember one kid was pretty much walking around with no pants on because the drag uh, of his body against the, the road as he skidded tore his pants off and he was bleeding on his side. Everybody was conscious except for one kid, Corey. When his friend Matt found him, he cried out, he's not moving. And I ran to Corey and I sat by his head and I put my ear on his mouth and I looked at his chest to see if he was breathing. He was breathing. He had a pulse. His chest was rising, but he was unconscious. As I kneeled there by his head, I felt wetness on my knees. And so I reached down and I touched them and I realized that I was covered in blood. I did not know where the blood was coming from. So I unzipped Corey's jacket and started to take it off. But I couldn't because his hand was falling off. And so I had to put the jacket back on and put his wrist, uh, his hand back onto his wrist and take my shirt off and tie a tourniquet around his hand. And we took all of our coats off and we packed Corey's body with our coats to try to keep him warm uh, and uh, to prevent him from going into shock. Well, fortunately, somebody had a cell phone. And even though we were in a canyon, that cell phone was able to make a call to 911. The call went through. And the dispatch on the other end of the line told us to hold tight, that help was on the way. And so we just sat there, uh, sitting in the darkness of this canyon, shivering from the cold, scared for our lives and for Corey's life, and staring down the road, watching and waiting for the sound of a siren and some indication of light. And just watching and waiting for the help That was promised to come. As we come to the end of the Lord's Prayer, we pray, "Deliver us from evil." Now I don't tell you this story tonight from my college year, my junior year in college, so that you hear about some hurting and hurtful college kids. I tell you the story because I really do believe, in some ways, it's our story—that we are all, in a sense sitting in the darkness of a canyon, shivering in the cold, scared for our lives, and staring into the distance, waiting for some light to come. That it's not just how EMTs found me on that night, it's how Jesus finds us. And as we look at John three sixteen to 18 tonight, we will learn three things. That the world is full of darkness, that it is evil, and it deserves to be condemned. Secondly, that God delivers us from evil through the gift of His Son. And thirdly, that we must receive and believe this gift in order to be saved. The first thing I want you to see tonight is that the world is full of evil, and it deserves to be condemned. Look at verse 19. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. When God sends his son into the world, he does not dispatch him into some neutral place. God sends his son into the world, he sends him into enemy occupied territory. He sends light into darkness a place that is perishing and to a people deserving of condemnation because their works are evil. Now, I know that talking about evil can be uncomfortable, much like saying Voldemort's name at Hogwarts. But there's a lesson to be learned there because when we don't talk about it, it grows in strength and power and we become more susceptible to its prey. Uh, Every year... uh, around September, October, Megan and I traveled to Montreal uh, to see the World Press Photo Exhibition. Now, I don't expect you to know what the World Press Photo Exhibition is, but it's kind of like the Pulitzer Prize uh, for photojournalism. I say going to World Press Photo is kind of like carving pumpkins, except you're the pumpkin. <laughs> like, it guts you. Um, the World Press Photo Exhibition is not sadistic. It doesn't delight in evil. It really, its mission is to tell true stories, the the truth of the way the world is. And all I can say is that the last exhibition, like for 2018, we saw some grisly things. We saw pictures of dead children, Willa's age, lined up in rows, drowned uh, while trying to flee the genocide taking place in Myanmar. We saw pictures of people hunkered down while a madman rained bullets on them from a Las Vegas casino. Nigerian girls who were kidnapped from school, brainwashed by Boko Haram, and then converted into suicide bombs. Women in Russia who dropped out of college and became sex workers in order to pay for their medicine and rent. Like I said, this this photo exhibition is like carving pumpkins, but you're the pumpkin. It's... It's hard. So why do we go? Why do we go year after year, driving a couple hours away, crossing a border, handing people our passport, driving into Montreal, finding a parking place, standing in line, and then paying people money to be eviscerated uh, by these images? And not just once, but year after year. It's not a rhetorical question, why do we go? Megan and I actually asked This question at dinner time, often afterwards. And the answer that we give year after year is the same we need this. We need to see this. We need to be seared by this. We need to be reminded of how much we need Jesus. I think one of the biggest mistakes that we can make in our life is to underestimate a problem. Uh, This was actually illustrated to me last night. I was at the New City Gallery in downtown Burlington. As you go up the stairs to the New City Gallery by the bathroom, um, if you were there last night, you would find a bucket sitting on the floor. And dripping from the ceiling into the bucket was a bunch of water. Now, this is not the first time I had seen water dripping from the ceiling into this bucket, but this was the first time I had seen it so bad. Years ago, when I first saw water dripping into this bucket, I thought it was a minor leak, something that even I, an idiot handyman, might be able to fix. But in reality, the problem is way, way, way worse than I imagined. Right? The ceiling is pretty much a swimming pool up there, and all of the wood is rotted out. What that needs is not an idiot contractor, it, or an idiot handyman like me. It needs like a professional contractor. Right? The situation there demands outside intervention. And going to World Press Photo is kind of like that. The problems that we have in this world are way, way bigger than just a drip, drip, drip. It's a full-on flood of evil and suffering. It is way bigger than something you or I could handle on our own. We desperately need outside intervention. There is a danger in living uh, in a place like Burlington, Vermont. Or going to a beautiful school like the University of Vermont. I think the danger is a twin one it's the danger of comfort and it's the danger of complacency. There is a danger of believing that everything is okay uh, when it's not. Because of our wealth and education, we have the ability to insulate ourselves from a whole lot of suffering. I ask you sometimes what's the point of your college education? And I think if some of you were really honest, you would say, it's not to alleviate suffering, but to escape it. You want to get a college education so you can make lots of money, so you can afford nice homes and a nicer neighborhood, so you can afford very expensive meds, and so you can drive to work and not have to take the bus. And trust me, I get it, right? Pain and suffering isn't nice. But if you are not careful, your wealth and your education will blind you to the reality of evil, and it will leave you defenseless when it strikes. If you are not careful, you can slink into thinking that the only thing that you really need to be rescued from is long waits at a red light, lukewarm coffee, and boring professors. Small problems little leaks and the world press photo exhibition shatters that illusion voldemort is real evil is real the world is dark and it is deserving of condemnation so what are you going to do about it you can try to distance yourself from it as i've just mentioned Secondly you can deny it. You can say with the Buddhists all is one. There's no distinction. There's no good, there's no evil, it just is. Don't change the world, there's nothing wrong with it, change your mind. You could say with the secular philosophers, there's no absolute right or wrong. And morality is a human construct. Denying or downplaying the existence of evil is easy to do in the ivory white towers of academia. But it is a whole lot harder to do in the slums. It's harder to do in the concentration camps. It's harder to do at the funerals of 20 kids who are gunned down in Newtown, Connecticut. It's hard to deny evil in those places. Some will try to deny evil's existence, and others will despair of it. Over the weekend when Megan was away, I watched a movie called First Reformed, starring Ethan Hawke. Ethan Hawke plays a reformed pastor uh, in an upstate New York church. And a pregnant woman approaches him after church one day. She's pregnant, and her husband wants her to have an abortion. He doesn't want to bring a child into a world like ours, a world that is dark and full of evil, He believes, too, that is on the brink of environmental ruin. He despairs of the evil that we have done to this planet. He despairs of the pollution. He despairs of man-made climate change. And his despair makes him want to kill his kid. And if he can't kill his kid, to kill himself. You can try to distance yourself from evil, to deny it, to despair of it. But fourthly, you can try to defeat it by playing its own game, sort of fighting evil with evil. And this is a popular impulse. This is uh, the impulse that plays out in films like Kill Bill or Kick-Ass or John Wick, shows like Dexter. We see it sometimes in our politics and popular uprisings. Anytime you hear the ends justify the means, this is what's going on. Now, of course, evil needs to be fought and it needs to be resisted. But how we fight it matters. What good is it if in our fight against evil, we become evil ourselves? As Gandhi famously put it, an eye for an eye is going to leave the whole world blind. Complicating matters. Evil is not just something out there. Evil is something inside each of us. In his Gulag Archipelago, for which he won a Nobel Prize, Alexander Sultanistan famously wrote, The line separating good and evil passes not through states, nor between classes, nor between political parties, but right through every human heart. And this is a biblical notion. In his letter to the Romans, the Apostle Paul writes, I find it to be a law that when I want to do what is right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my, my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. What wretched man that I am, who's going to deliver me from this body of death? Look, evil's not just a problem out there, something that we see through glass windows, something that we see on our television screens. Evil is also something within here, something that we see in the mirror, as it were, or as we survey our lives. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? That is the question. Less, what should I do, and more, who should I turn to? And the answer to that question is contained here in verses 16 and 17. God delivers us from evil through the gift of his son. Verse 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. God delivers us from evil by sending his son into the world. And as you read more and more of the scriptures, what you discover is that he doesn't just send his son into the world once. He's going to send him two times. The first time God sends his son into the world is the one described here. It's a search and rescue mission. But when he sends his son into the world again, it will be a seek and destroy mission. Why two missions? Why not just come once and for all, uh, sort of get rid of evil in one fell swoop? Like, why does God do it in two stages like this? Well, I hope you realize by now that if that's what God did, if he came just one time bearing the sword against evil, that that would leave us in a pretty precarious position since our lives are full of it, since sin and evil resides in us. If God's going to come and wage war against evil, that really is in some ways a war against us. That's a problem. At least it is for God, because God so loves the world. Have you ever heard it said, God hates sin, but loves the sinner? That's what John 3.16 is all about. God hates sin, but he loves us, right? He loves sinners, which is to say he wants to destroy sin. He wants to destroy evil without having to destroy us in the process. So how is he going to do it? Well, it's kind of like a mission impossible made possible. God, who spoke all things into existence, who created the world, he becomes a human being. And then he lives a perfect life. And then, in a crazy turn of events, he lets us put him to death. God is willing to go to the cross and to suffer the most painful, humiliating, evil death that human beings have ever, designed, have ever devised not to die for his sins because he didn't have any, but to die for ours. See, on the cross, God takes the punishment all of our evil thoughts, words, and deeds deserve in our place, right, as our substitute. And in this, he's not unlike Belle in Beauty and the Beast when she says, take me instead. I'll take the punishment I'll bear the curse and condemnation so you don't have to. On the cross, God loving the sinner, but hating the sin. Jesus came first, not to condemn the world, but to bear its condemnation. Not to wield the sword, but to fall on it. You can think of Jesus as both an atomic bomb and an atomic bomb shelter. God directs all of his wrath against sin. You could say he fires off all of his missiles and he aims them at the cross. The cross is kind of like a giant X, right? X marks the spot, and it's an X that he essentially draws on himself. He says, bear it on me. Aim all of that anger, all of that wrath, all of my my vitriol at sin, aim it at me. I will take the heat. I will take the blow. Because God is on the cross and not just any human being, God is aiming those missiles at Himself. Jesus is not just the bomb, He's the bomb shelter. The one who's going to absorb the blast so that we can emerge free. This is the point of His coming in the first place. He is our rock, He is our refuge. He is our fortress and strong tower. He is our shield. He is our savior. He has given us a way out. He has given us a way right, to survive final judgment. That's why he comes in the first place. But as I mentioned, he's not just coming one time. He's coming two times. Christ has died, Christ has risen, and Christ will come again. And when he comes again... It's to execute justice. It is to get rid of evil once and for all, to really wipe the slate clean, to do away with genocide and suicide bombers and sex sex trafficking and slavery. He's going to get rid of it all, all of the evil that's out there, all of the evil that's in here. And the only way that you will be able to withstand that judgment is when you recognize that the world is evil and that you yourself have evil within you and then you run to him for rescue and you hide yourself in him. Because God has not just dropped the bomb. He's not just gonna drop the bomb on evil and sin. He's also for you, because of Jesus, a bomb shelter, a way out, a way for you to survive that. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only son of God. We have an opportunity, right, to run to him. Uh, now, you don't have to put this off. This brings me to my third point. What must we do in order to, uh, to be saved? We must receive and we must believe this gift. Uh, you need to believe in him, you know, as the text says, which is to say you need to trust him. You need to trust his words. The world is evil and it is deserving of condemnation. And this is like I said, not just an observation that we see as we look out the window, it's what we see when we look in our own lives as well. Do not underestimate the problem. As I say, cheer up. You are way worse than you think you are, but you are also more loved than you could imagine. You are a sinner, a big sinner, but God so loved the world that he gave us his only son. That whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. God did not send his son into the world to destroy it, to destroy you. He sent his son in the world to be destroyed so that he could save you. So that when he does come again, you can stand. Trust his words and trust his actions. Trust that on the cross, he really was dying for you and for your sins, both past, present, and future. Trust that he has indeed given you a way out so that when he comes again, he can deliver you from evil without destroying you in the process. Find your rest uh, and your refuge in him. I read this week that Jesus came from the light into our darkness so that we could leave our darkness and come to the light. I thought that was pretty poetic. I'll say it again. Jesus came from the light into our darkness so that we could leave our darkness and come to the light. So let me ask you as we are about to sing, are you hurting and broken within? Are you overwhelmed by the weight of your sin? And Jesus is calling Have you come to the end of yourself? Do you thirst from the drink for the well? Jesus is calling. So let's go to him. And let's come as we are in the shape that we are in. Let's come brokenhearted and let rescue begin. Let's pray. Father, as you've taught us to pray. You've instructed us to come to you as your kids and to look at you, the one who fashioned all things, who who hung the stars on the sky, to not call you boss or Lord Almighty, but to call you dad. You have sent your son to the world, yes, to bear sins, punishment in our place so that we who live on the outside could be brought in without fear, without guilt, without shame that we might be able to come in as adopted children. We look up, and we thank you for your fatherhood. We look out, and we see a world in ruin. There's beauty in it, to be sure, because it's a world you have fashioned. But it's also a world in grave disrepair. The problems aren't just outside of us, they're inside of us as well. And we pray that you would make all wrong things right and that you would heal hurt and you would establish good. Lord, as we look in, we see the ways that you've cared for us by putting food in our belly and clothes on our back and a roof over our head. I pray, Lord, we would not take those things for granted. And Lord, I pray that we would not use our privilege to further enrich ourselves, but that rather we would use our privileges to bless others and to enrich our neighbors and our peers. Lord, forgive us our sins. We want to let go of the things that are getting in the way of a relationship with you. That we would lay them at Jesus' feet and find forgiveness and behold your smiling face and lord for the relationships that we are in that are estranged and broken by the sin of this world we pray for the grace to show forgiveness as you have shown it to us that you would move us in the paths of peace and towards reconciliation i know that that is a process but would you help us in it and to take the first steps in it lord lead us not into temptation which is to say lead us out of it Help us to see you as good and loving and for us, that we might further know you and love you and trust you. Would that enable us to say yes to you and no to our sin? And ultimately, Lord, would you deliver us from evil? Would you be the light that comes into our darkness? We cannot fix this broken world. We are watching and waiting for you to do what only you can do which is to re- redeem and restore it. Until that time comes, would you keep our lights lit? Would we give a sort of a glimpse or a foretaste of what is to come and holding out hope in the midst uh, of a darkened world? Not a hope that is in ourselves, but a hope that is firmly rooted in you. And oh, Lord, I also just want to lift up and pray for the fires in California, for fires that are ravaging a place called Paradise, California. Um, Lord, would you heal uh, the hurts inflicted by those flames and comfort the families that are grieving? Would you protect lives and property? We also pray for those who came under fire uh, at a club in Southern California, uh, the victims of another shooting attack. And I pray, Lord, you would liberate us from this madness. Deliver us from evil, we pray, in Jesus' name. Amen.